What is mainstream media failing to report in its coverage of the economic and humanitarian situation in the South American country of Venezuela? How did President Maduro fail in his attempts to sustain the gains under his predecessor, Hugo Chavez? Are the three pillars of the Bolivarian Revolution now in conflict with each other? Are strategic military and economic alliances with Russia and China helping or hurting Venezuela in the long run? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we return to Venezuela two months after Juan Guaido's self-declaration as the interim president of Venezuela and attempt to assess some of the developments and what they mean for the success of U.S. and allied intervention in the affairs of this nation under siege. Over the course of the next hour, we will hear from longtime Venezuela watcher and researcher Julia Buxton about some of the factors undermining the welfare of Venezuelans that both the anti-Maduro right and the pro-Maduro left are neglecting to address. On this week's show, Venezuela Under Siege, a conversation with Professor Julia Buxton. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 29th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. NATO planners feared a weakening of self-confidence among Western Europe's elite and the widely held belief that communism was the wave of the future. Tens of thousands of North American troops were stationed in Western Europe to strengthen the Western European elite's confidence to face growing left-wing parties and movements. Apparently, secret anti-communist NATO protocols committed alliance countries' intelligence agencies to preventing communist parties from gaining power. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, information surfaced regarding groups the CIA and MI6 organized to stay behind in case of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. That comes from the article, On NATO's 70th Anniversary, Important to Remember Its Anti-Democratic Roots, by Eve Engler, posted March 28th, originally published on the author's blog site. During a 20-minute television interview, Sarkozy described the investigation into the allegations that he acted as an agent of influence for Libya as, quote, a waste of time, unquote, arguing that it was over an alleged donation of less than $45,000, which represented a tiny fraction of his campaign budget. But, according to the French investigative news website Mediapart, a team of French judges was told by Gaddafi's former spy chief that Sarkozy was given millions of dollars in secret by the Libyan state. Abdullah al-Senussi, who oversaw the Libyan intelligence agencies under Gaddafi, reportedly told the French investigators that the funding was part of a secret deal between the two parties. In 1979, Senussi married the sister of Gaddafi's wife and remained a trusted confidant of the Libyan leader until his violent death in 2011. 
According to Mediapar, he told the French judges that he personally supervised the transfer of funds to Sarkozy's election campaign. That comes from the article, Gaddafi spy chief, Libya gave ex-French President Sarkozy $8 million bribe. Posted March 28th, originally published at True Publica. The verdict in the case Hardiman versus Monsanto before a federal district court in San Francisco found exposure to glyphosate, the signature ingredient in Roundup, caused plaintiff Edward Hardiman's non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Jurors awarded $80 million in damages to Hardiman. Clearly, the testimony that informed the jury's decision was Bear Monsanto hiding Roundup's carcinogenic properties, manipulating the science, and cozying up with EPA so it would not have to warn consumers of its dangerous product, said EWG President Ken Cook. Bear Monsanto has known for decades the cancer-causing properties of Roundup, and I applaud the jury for holding the company accountable for failing to warn consumers of the known danger. This verdict puts Bayer's back firmly up against the wall as the cost of litigation mounts and its stock price gets pummeled once again, said Cook. That comes from the article, Jury Slams Monsanto for Corporate Malfeasance in Roundup Cancer Trial Awards $80 Million in Damages by EWG, posted March 28th. 298 passengers and crew were murdered in Ukraine in order to create a propaganda attack on Russia. The filth that comprised the Western media and governments hid the truth for the sake of Washington's anti-Russian propaganda. The security official says that his suspicions were aroused by, quote, the amazingly prompt reaction of the Ukrainian leadership, unquote, which, quote, indicated prior knowledge of the affair, unquote. Perhaps readers will remember that at the time I pointed out that the event was clearly staged as the same propagandistic accusation against Russia appeared everywhere instantly long before any investigation. Indeed, the investigation was stillborn as it could not be concocted to indicate Russia's guilt. That comes from the article, Ukrainian Security Official Says Ukraine Shot Down MH17 by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Posted March 27th, originally published on the author's blog site, Paul Craig Roberts Institute for Political Economy. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Julia Buxton is Professor of Comparative Politics at Central European University's School of Public Policy and Senior Research Associate at the Global Drug Policy Observatory, Swansea University. She's authored numerous books and articles on Venezuela in the Chavez period and on Latin America in general. Her engagement with Venezuela goes back to the mid-1990s when she was seeking to research democratization practices in Eastern Europe and Latin America. A PhD supervisor directed her to Venezuela, saying it was seen as a model of a successful democracy, but that there was serious trouble coming down the road. Buxton claimed this to be the best academic advice she ever received. Professor Buxton was in Winnipeg during the past week, while Venezuela was undergoing a series of power outages. She spoke to supporters of the Venezuela Peace Committee in Winnipeg on the evening of Monday, March 25th. 
What follows is an excerpt from that talk. So the arguments of the opposition, as most of you will be aware, Wang Guaido, who was the president of the National Assembly, um, was declared into, well, self-declared as interim president uh, very, very shortly after Maduro's inauguration. And the basis of this claim was that Maduro's victory was illegitimate, therefore under the constitution there was a vacuum of power, and in a situation of a vacuum of power, the president of the National Assembly assumes an interim presidency. So that's where they are in terms of this current parallel power situation. Back to Maduro and the calling of this election, and this is what I think has really undermined Maduro's kind of international capacity to build a big support against the opposition on this occasion, unlike previous years, is that the opposition won the National Assembly election in 2015. Landslide victory for the opposition. But then what Maduro did, as I'm sure you're all aware, is Maduro decided to work through a different mechanism. He convened what was called the National Constituent Assembly in 2016, 2017. And he did that because he did face ongoing, relentless opposition impediments in the National Assembly. The opposition, rather than working and using the National Assembly as a mechanism to progress changes that they felt needed to be negotiated in Venezuela, there was no progressive agenda whatsoever. It was simply a constant focus on the release of the main opposition leader, Leopoldo Lopez. There was debates about an amnesty bill, which amnestied people for terrorism offences, for arson, for a whole litany um, of offences carried out during the opposition's campaign to unseat Maduro. And also they began to roll back some of the Chavista policies. But astonishingly, some of the most popular Chavista policies, such as in the area of housing and land distribution. So certainly when the opposition assumed control of the National Assembly, in my view, they exercised that control in a very irresponsible manner. But then the response of Maduro was to bypass the National Assembly to set up the National Constituent Assembly. So what that basically did is what we've had for the last 20 years, which has been a chess game, as it were, of advance and retreat between the government and its opponents. And that's what's brought us to this impasse where we are now. But the National Constituent Assembly, is everybody with me? on this long litany of issues. So the National Constituent Assembly took the decision to forward the presidential election of 2019. That presidential, sorry, 2018. That election should have occurred in December, but the National Constituent Assembly forwarded it to the March. So that then raised a whole host of what I have to concede are quite credible criticisms that the National Constituent Assembly had usurped its authority in changing the date of the election. Because authority for changing the dates of election actually resides with the National Election Council. So what we see here, particularly in terms of how the opposition has been able to mobilise in Europe, how it's been able to mobilise opinion in the United States... (laughs) is that there has been this constant changing of the rules of the game. The opposition, as I'm sure we're all aware, um, or if anybody does want to stand up and defend the opposition's record here, I'll be very interested to hear that, but the opposition, I think, has been very, very clever in how it's played international attention. 
It mobilized the European Union, it mobilized the US and Canada in the event this election was forwarded. And as soon as the election was forwarded, it was not recognized by European Union countries, by Canada and the US. So I think Maduro made a strategic and tactical error over these last few years, which has led Venezuela to where it is now. So where we are right now is this big parallel power situation. On the one hand, we have Maduro, still in Miraflores Palace, supported as the sovereign leader of Venezuela by Russia, by Turkey, by China, by India, I think is still recognizing Maduro on the one hand, and then on the other hand, recognizing Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela is many, well, all of the European Union countries, the US, Canada. So I think currently there are about 70 countries which have recognized Guaido. So this, as I'm sure you can imagine, has given the opposition huge amounts of traction. In their claim, they will not accept negotiations or dialogue. They see themselves as the legitimate only presidency of Venezuela. But there have been huge miscalculations by the opposition. Firstly, they expected that the military would defect. The military has not defected, as I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, the military high command has remained resolutely behind Maduro. And despite opposition claims that there would be huge numbers of the military flocking over to the side of Guaido, this has simply not happened. So I think in terms of opposition intelligence, as it were, around the military perspective on Venezuela, they were fundamentally flawed in how they understood and read the loyalty of the military. What we've also seen from the opposition over recent weeks is that they have attempted to make up for this failure by offering amnesties. It was actually Marco Rubio, that very well-known Venezuelan politician, who was the first to issue the, uh, the promise of an amnesty. He tweeted the name on, I think it was February the 14th, of six senior military officers and said that in their hands the future democracy of Venezuela lay so if they defected from the Maduro government, they would be amnestied. I think this was a huge miscalculation by the US, of which we can talk about many, but clearly this was a complete violation of Venezuelan sovereignty, and it also completely undermined Guaido, because his own amnesty bill had not at that point, and still yet, has not been passed by Venezuela's National Assembly. So we have US really interfering here, and then Guaido came out and said, I will offer amnesties. But this is a very serious complication for Guaido, because at the same time as offering amnesties to the military, the opposition are also pursuing a human rights case in the International Criminal Court against the same military they're proposing to amnesty. <laughs> and at the same time, these same military people have been sanctioned by the United States of America. So this is a real mess, a real, real mess. But what worries me about this situation, not only is it a mess, but also what message is this sending out to the Venezuelan population? Because there is a very, very serious problem of insecurity and violence in Venezuela. Venezuela has the world's highest homicide rate. And yet we're not going to be able to address insecurity and violence unless we have a national consensus and dialogue around who are the providers of national security. 
And this cannot simply be decided by Marco Rubio. The third problem that I'd highlight that the, uh, the opposition has caused for itself is that in this current situation of parallel powers, Guaido has moved ahead with a number of appointments in his parallel government. So he's appointed a number of diplomats overseas. He's also appointed uh, a new board to Sitgo, which is the wholly owned affiliate of the national oil company Pelevesa, which is based in the US. And he's also appointed Venezuela's new representative to the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, which is a man called Ricardo Hausman. If you're not familiar with Ricardo Hausman, um, he has spent the last few years at Harvard University, where he runs a development center, and where he has elaborated this plan for turning Venezuela around once the opposition take power. He also was a minister in the government of President Carlos Andres Perez at the start of the 1990s, where he was one of the architects of Venezuela's neoliberal misgovernance, a really catastrophic period for Venezuela, but Hausman was one of the pivotal figures in the neoliberal stabilization and structural adjustment program. Now, the reason why this is very complicated, apart from the fact that we have two governments appointing, making separate appointments, there was the Commission on Narcotic Drug meeting in Vienna last week, and the US delegation were handing out forms to all of the country representatives, telling them to ignore the official Venezuelan representative and to only discuss with Guaido's parallel interim representative at that meeting. So we've got the US moving around trying to lobby for Guaido, and we've got other countries internationally not sure quite who to work with, but with really serious issues around sovereignty, around loans which <coughs> Venezuela has taken out, and around the future direction of the country. The reason I mention Hausman is because I think this reveals an even bigger problem about the opposition, which is that we have really no clue what their plans are whatsoever, which is quite extraordinary because they've been developing them for the last 20 years. <laughs> we used to say that the Venezuelan opposition had a plan for power and not a plan for government. After events over January and February, I'm not so sure they actually had a plan for power either. But the real challenge here is that on the one hand, we have Hausman who is a neoliberal by background, neoliberal in his historical record in Venezuelan government. We have this so-called Plan Pais, which is the Venezuelan opposition's plan for national reconstruction, which is very, very long and detailed on all that's gone wrong in Venezuela and mentions very little about how they're going to change the situation. It's very big on buzzwords. It talks about democracy, it talks about opening the economy, it talks about establishing functioning institutions. But the reality, as I'm sure we're all aware, is that Venezuela and the Venezuelan states has been dominated for 20 years by Chavismo. So it's very unclear, particularly to investors who the opposition think are going to come flocking back to Venezuela, how, if the opposition become permanent in power they're actually going to govern the country. Because if they move ahead with plans for stabilisation and structural adjustment, this is going to mean privatisation of industry, this is going to mean privatisation of land that was redistributed, which will face a huge backlash, I expect, from all those people who were empowered during the Bolivarian revolutionary process and people who work in the nationalised sectors. 
It's really not clear how they're going to deliver governance, given that the entire state infrastructure has been controlled and still is controlled by Chavista appointees. But most interestingly is that Guaido's party, Voluntad Popular, is a member of the Socialist International. (laughs) Sorry. That's my response every night when I read this in the newspaper. Is exactly Lewis Carroll? <laughs> so they're a member of the Socialist International, and it's on the basis that they're a member of the Socialist International that so many left of centre parties in Europe, arguably the US, have moved behind Guaido. But I think the reality of a future Guaido government is not really going to be in line with the way that the Spanish or the German or even the split-off factions of the British Labour Party expect that this Guaido government is going to be. So that's where we are right now in Venezuela. I think the... I mean, I'll come back to Maduro in a minute if that's also helpful. But I think the real challenge we have with the opposition (coughs) movement, we don't know who they are, We don't know what they plan to do. We've got really no idea whether they will remain unified. The opposition is enormously fragile, enormously eclectic. What's also interesting about the opposition is the diaspora is enormous now because of the number of people who have left Venezuela. An estimated 4 million people have left Venezuela. But the diaspora community, I would argue, are very, very potent as a political tool for Guaido. They are hugely active on Twitter, hugely active on Facebook, constantly lobbying foreign governments, constantly lobbying the employers of people who write in Venezuela and talk about Venezuela. This is a very powerful and strong opposition campaign led from overseas. But I think the real challenge that Guaido is going to have is reconciling such a diversity of interests around his government. I would suggest Guaido is whatever you want him to be. And that's the real challenge. We have no idea actually what he is or what he represents. But the final point I would just like to make about Guaido is all of these appointments I mentioned to you before, nearly all of them, I'd say about 98% have been men. Now, the problem with only having a transition government full of men is it jettisons everything we have learnt about economic inclusion, political inclusion, socioeconomic development, and the right of women to have a role in political negotiation and political evolution. This is a government, interim government, which is completely dominated, I would argue, by a small clique of overwhelmingly US-educated men. So for many of those people who are looking at this so-called transition government as a fantastic opportunity for modernity, for democracy, for inclusion, huge disappointment. We've seen the resumption of charismatic leadership. It was really interesting the other day, it was the uh, anniversary of Hugo Chavez's death, And all of the opposition and the diaspora social media, never again will we have charismatic leadership. As they hold aloft their new charismatic leader, Juan Guaido. This opposition campaign has been one of what was called the other day in the media, circus. It's PR stunts. It's about media publicity. 
as ever, the opposition has not learned the fundamental key route to change that they want to see in Venezuela, which is connecting with ordinary Venezuelan people. Their focus has been overseas. Their focus has been on generating and galvanizing media attention. So I think the opposition, although if I say opposition on social media, you get lambasted, or if you go on the news and talk about the Venezuelan opposition, they are very emphatic. They're not the opposition anymore. They are the government now. The opposition has said they will not accept any dialogue. So to my mind, what's happening is we're basically moving back to this kind of winner-takes-all, zero-sum politics. They refuse to have any negotiation with Maduro. They refuse to have any negotiation for all the reasons I mentioned before. It's a dictatorship, there's corruption, there's human rights abuses in their narrative. But the reality is, unless you have consensus over the judiciary, over the military, over the National Electoral Council, you're going to have only half of the country which will recognise the security arrangements, election results and the rule of law. So this is the big problem I think we have in Venezuela. Now, very briefly on Maduro, I would suggest here ongoing problems which I discussed two years ago. I think that this government of Maduro has basically found itself now, and this is why I have moved to a position of dialogue and negotiations, of ungovernability in Venezuela. Now clearly the opposition have a huge level of responsibility for this situation as well. The sanctions that the US has recently imposed on the oil sector, I would argue, are really pushing the situation to a very, very critical point, but I think it's better we have a broader discussion amongst ourselves about the sanctions. But this really has been, in my view, a government that has completely mismanaged the economy. The situation of hyperinflation that Venezuela finds itself dealing with today, I would say, really predates the financial sanctions of 2017 and is largely a product of fiscal mismanagement. I think Maduro has a team of people around him on the economy who simply are not strong enough to guide Venezuela towards the promises of the Bolivarian Revolution. And I think the real challenge for Maduro, obviously, has been Venezuela's ongoing dependence on the oil sector. And if anything, what we saw during the Chavez period was that this dependence on oil and this dependence on the US market for Venezuelan oil actually deepened during during Chavez's presidency. So Maduro has found himself with an accumulation of problems that he inherited from Chavez, but I would say that his lack of governance capability, his centralisation within the government, which has been to the detriment of these vibrant grassroots organisations that really were the heartbeat of Chavismo, I think that has really been lost. This is a very centralised administration. It's a system of state management rather than workers' power in the nationalised industries, as I think many on the left had hoped it would be. And I think more than anything, this has also become a heavily militarised government. We have a level of military influence and control and authority in Venezuela that I really don't think was ever anticipated by any of us who first were so enamoured by the Bolivarian Revolution. So my conclusion in this situation is that Venezuela, the situation in Venezuela, is going to get infinitely worse. I mean, we all think it's bad right now, but this situation, in my view, will get worse. 
If they try and overthrow Maduro, I expect that there will be loyal sectors of Bolivarianism who will take up arms. I think the worst case scenario for Venezuela is a civil insurgency. My worst fear is that that could then spill over into neighboring Colombia, where we have a very, I talked about this two years ago, where we have a very, very fragile peace process. And we're also looking at a continent where the right, the political right, is really on the ascendant. Colombia, Brazil, Argentina. So the landscape has changed. It's not favorable to Maduro. And we have a situation in the United States of America where right now the most intensive our lobbying has been focused on preventing a military invasion into Venezuela. So far, it seems the US has pulled back. But really perplexingly, I really remain quite convinced that I will wake up one morning, have a look at Twitter, and the invasion has begun. And I think once we've taken that step, that is a very, very dangerous move that will then plunge not just Venezuela, but the whole of the region into bloodshed, violence and insurgency. That was part of a talk given by Professor Julia Buxton to a group of activists in Winnipeg on the crisis in Venezuela. Coming up, my exclusive interview with Professor Buxton. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I had a chance to speak with Julia Buxton in the CKUW studio on Wednesday, March 27th, in the midst of Venezuela's latest power outage. We brought up some of the analysis of former guest Steve Elner from late last year. Steve Elner, who we had... Uh, in the studio uh, back in October. <laughs> and uh, he pointed to the, the current economic chaos that's gripped the country as, a, as attributable, attributable basically to three things, the, the, the oil, the, the drop in oil price, uh, in which where we have, <laughs> it's, it's really uh, ha- had an impact on an economy very dependent on oil. There's also this economic warfare that's being waged both uh, from you know, foreign centers, uh, you know, Washington, as well as uh, internally with the uh, oligarchs. And then there's the third. Well, what his uh, perspective is that the third component would be the uh, the failure to aggressively address the, these price and exchange controls introduced after the 2002 in the wake of the 2002 uh, oil industry lockout. Mm-hmm. So, I, first of all, I, I wanted to g- maybe get your sense of, I mean, if you, <laughs> addressing the same question, if, if there's anything more you would add to that, or maybe if there's an emphasis on those part, uh, those th- three points I just raised. Well, Steve Elner is one of the uh, most influential figures uh, on Venezuela. And Steve's analysis, I think, has been, uh, you know, very important for me in, in my own understanding of, of what's going on in Venezuela. I would probably add to what Steve said there in terms of, I think, We have seen some pretty poor macroeconomic management from the Maduro government. Uh, During the Chavez period, we had, you know, a lot of oil money that was coming into Venezuela. So the government wasn't exactly fiscally prudent. We didn't have the monitoring and evaluation or transparency as far as the, the money and the revenues went. What's happened under Maduro is that the opacity the lack of transparency around government finances, I think, has got much worse. And I think the lack of good quality macroeconomic management has become a real problem. I don't think the team around Maduro are 
the most competent economic managers. And I think very important decisions that should have been taken weren't taken by Maduro when he first came to power in uh, 2013. And in particular here, I would think about the subsidy on oil. Uh, domestic gasoline remains incredibly cheap, perversely cheap, cheaper than water. And it's a very regressive subsidy because the people who obviously uh, receive the benefits of that subsidy are those with very large cars and not those who are using public transport. So it always kind of boggled my mind why they really didn't address that subsidy. And also they maintained price controls and exchange controls. And the exchange control system has been a magnet for corruption. Uh, If you have close contacts or linkages with uh, people who are responsible for the exchange control system, it's been, you know, an ample opportunity to get dollars at very, very favourable rates and be able to transfer those and make a huge profit on the black market. And price controls, I would argue, have fueled shortages and inflation. So, you know, it's Venezuela finds itself in a situation that really it didn't need to get into had we had more competent economic management from the government. So these other factors, the US sanctions, the collapse in oil prices, these are obviously pivotal to understanding the the wider picture of what's happened in Venezuela. But Venezuela could have insulated itself far better from the turmoil which it's now experiencing. And I think that's the great tragedy of what's happened under Maduro. So you can't. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say hindsight is twenty twenty. But I mean, there there were a, a lot of pressures that uh, you know both Chavez and and Maduro had been under, um, and of course, you know, we've seen going back to the uh, like you know the, the two thousand two era. I mean, there's a full awareness of efforts to uh, to undermine the government, but uh, you. Um, you don't necessarily. You, know, you say that there are certain economic uh, measures that, uh, e- even in a near paranoid sense of, of panic, that, that that doesn't exactly excuse some of those economic decisions. They were basically, I don't know, incompetent uh, middle level managers. I'm, I'm I'm afraid that really is the conclusion that I have come to there because uh, certainly there was ongoing U.S. hostility towards Chavez and and. We've seen that strengthened and tightened, obviously, during the Maduro period. Um, But I think that, you know, Venezuela, when oil prices were high, had the opportunity to save money. It actually set up a windfall um, oil trust, whereby all of the excessive revenues would be from from the budgeted price for a barrel of oil would have been stored and saved by the government. And so much of these plans for responsible and prudent fiscal management, which I know makes me sound incredibly conservative um, in my views of uh, economic policymaking, but there were measures that were very, very basic that could have been taken and they could have saved more of this windfoil oil revenue when it was coming in. When Chavez was first elected to government in 1999, Uh, The value of a barrel of oil in Venezuela was around $13. And then in the mid-2000s, we were looking at $120 per barrel of oil when Venezuela was pumping essentially 2.4 million barrels of oil a day. So there was vast revenues coming into the country. But rather than saving these revenues, I think the revenues were used to essentially telescope the Bolivarian revolution to massively increase the outlays in terms of social welfare, housing, education, health. And it worked. It worked, but it's not been sustainable. And it's not been sustainable because so much of the uh, money that was put into creating these projects in the first place has disappeared because it was all oil revenue. So the challenge for Venezuela was that we had, you know, a quantity of measures that were introduced. But what we need to see now is more quality of measures. So this has been the big difficulty in the transition that they've had to make. 
because they haven't got alternative sources of revenue in order to sustain these what were wonderful policy initiatives. So we saw incredible advances in the mid-2000s. We saw people lifted out of poverty. We saw people in education. We saw access to housing um, and employment that we'd never seen before. But it wasn't sustainable. But it could have been sustainable. So certainly there were, as you said, pressures from the United States. But I think it also has to be remembered that in the you know early 2000s, the US was hopelessly diverted from what was happening in Latin America, or thankfully diverted from what was happening in Latin America, because of its focus on Afghanistan and Iraq. So while there was this intense pressure on Venezuela, at the same time, I think Chavez probably had more latitude um, in terms of his domestic policy than other Latin American governments have had historically, when there's been a very, very intense US focus on what the domestic political situation's been in Latin American countries. So Chavez had some freedom of manoeuvre. And at the same time, it was a very favourable regional landscape in that this was the period of the pink tide. So you had left-wing governments elected in Argentina, in Brazil, in Bolivia, in Ecuador. So Venezuela was really surrounded in the mid-2000s by very, very favourable neighbours. So this was a wonderful opportunity. But I think what we're seeing now, in retrospect, is that this was a very unique window of opportunity. And now we have right-of-centre governments in Brazil and in Argentina. I think we're looking back in retrospect and saying, well, actually, these steps to consolidate, institutionalise and put this revolution on a sustainable financial footing, those opportunities were lost. And that's been the big tragedy, I think, of what's happened in Venezuela. There's some interesting dynamics that have animated this whole uh, the political situation. Uh, you have, on the one hand, the power wielded by the military. They were essentially that the unity of the military, or, or so is the understanding, that has basically foiled a coup attempt, at least for the time being. And uh, as I've heard you point out, I mean, Chavez himself came from a military background, and he was deeply suspicious of the uh, more civilian institutions. But of course, I mean, we also, you know, you, you bring in the, the issue of the uh, nationalization, the state, the PSUV, and their you know role in, in nationalizing for the benefit of the uh, the people, and then there's the you know among the origins of of the Bolivarian Revolution is these local level you know constituent uh, where we have individuals uh, you know, in community groups that uh, you know formulate and discuss policy and and send it upward. So you have that popular aspect, you have the state aspect, and you have the military aspect, and. So th those th th those seem to be three separate actors that are all influencing the situation, and I, I just want to maybe give it, get your sense of how they uh, their, their interactions, if they're hierarchical, they how they intermingle, intermingle, contradict each other, and and how that's playing out to the benefit or detriment of the country. Yeah, well, I think what what was remarkable about the the period of the Chavez presidency, so from 1998 when when Chavez was first elected through to his death from cancer in 2013, we saw incredibly innovative uh, political measures that sought to build a participatory democracy. This was a government that was committed to building what they called a new geometry of power. So rather than the traditional liberal democratic mechanisms of people voting every four or six years for local congressmen and legislative officials, what the Bolivarian Revolution emphasised was the importance of routine participation at the community level. So we saw enormous decentralisation um, of political power and authority down to the local level. 
But the problem was opponents of Chavez refused to participate. So what essentially began to emerge in Venezuela, which I think was a contradiction that the Bolivarian Revolution never really addressed, was in essence a parallel state structure. So on the one hand, those that were part of the revolutionary process, the institutions of the revolution, the community councils. But then you also had those people in the opposition parties who refused to participate, who withdrew from any form of election and who basically boycotted this Bolivarian revolutionary process. So it never really managed to incorporate a very vigorous and robust uh, section of the population which refused to acknowledge the legitimacy um, or the progress that was being delivered by the revolutionary process itself. So you had community organisations and grassroots groups, which I think brought into Venezuelan politics people who have been marginalised for many, many decades. Um, Afro-Venezuelans, women's organisations, people from the barrios, from the poorer communities who had never really had a voice or a say in Venezuelan politics were empowered certainly by this Bolivarian process in the mid-2000s and the opportunities that it provided. You also had the military... Also a key uh, actor here, Chavez, coming from the ranks of the military himself, the 1999 Bolivarian Constitution created a whole new raft of responsibilities for the military, allowed the military to participate in politics, vote in politics in elections for the very first time, and then the state and the ruling PSUV. Now, I think what's changed dramatically in my interpretation of what's happened in Venezuela is that... When we had Chavez in power, Chavez was a master at keeping these three different pillars of the revolutionary process um, basically symmetrical and cohesive. He gave voice to the grassroots organisations. He managed to retain the PSUV as a a relatively lively party political organisation. And also the military also had opportunities for articulating what they believe should be the future direction of the country. I think what's happened under Maduro is that the... Symmetry between all of these different groups and organisations was lost. Maduro, to my mind, did not have the connections um, or the ties or the interest even to the grassroots organisations that Chavez had so, so, so encouraged and sponsored and supported. So we kind of have seen, I think, a lot of the community organisations drop out of the vision of the Venezuelan Bolivarian revolution that we originally saw under Chavez. Um, I think that's been one of the greatest losses, really. I think the community organisations, the women's groups, the the role and the importance of uh, the Afro-Venezuelan community has really, I think, kind of been lost in the current situation. And instead, I think the military has been more empowered. So we have the military and government uh, in Venezuela. We have military oversight of the mines. Uh, the military run the petroleum sector. They're very important actors in terms of economic policy. So I think what's happened is that the military have become very much empowered under Maduro to an extent that we never really saw under Hugo Chavez. And I also think detrimentally really to the, the democratic quality of the revolution is that the PSUV itself has been become a very centralised party. And in its struggle really to retain power, what's happened under Maduro is that instead of candidacies in local elections and state governorship contests being awarded to people from grassroots organisations, what the government has done is really kind of circulated elites. So what we have are a lot of the same faces, the same figures, uh, high level top people from within the PSUV who are really holding on to candidacies. And I think this has really disempowered local level people. So I think we've lost a lot of the democratic traction that we had under Chavez. 
Admittedly, Maduro's working in a very different landscape. The pink tide has receded, the oil price collapsed. But ultimately, I think the kind of intellectual mobility um, and emphasis that there was under Chavez, that sense of direction, I think, has been lost. And I think that's why Venezuela is in a very perilous moment. There's long been an understanding of, of the U.S. and these foreign powers looking to uh, overturn the revolution. So it's understandable that as a, you know, in, a, in the spirit of uh, emergency measures and so on, that uh, you would want to, you know, in, you know, strengthen the military and your ties with it. You don't want to see uh, the, the military, you know, becoming disunited because that was something that it seems uh, Mr. Guaido and his people were uh, hoping to uh, foster in the interest of, uh, you know, taking over. They wanted to bring the military on side. So there's, there's, you could see the pragmatic aspect of that. I, I but at the same time, that. at the same time, and what is this doing to the, the democratic? I think that's the key thing. What is this doing to the democratic process? But also the other really salient factor for me here is that Venezuela does have very high levels of insecurity, very high levels of violence. It has one of the highest homicide rates in the world. The third largest? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the big challenge here is if you want to have a participatory revolutionary process, people need to feel safe and secure when they go outside to participate. And Chavez inherited a very, very severe problem of insecurity and violence, but never really meaningfully addressed it. Mm. So I think the problem is if you're going to bring the military and the wider security sector into politics, then that cannot be to the neglect of basic civic security in your country. And I think that's the big problem that Venezuela has right now, is that the military and the security sector are too heavily invested in politics to be playing the fundamental role, which is providing security for Venezuelan citizens. You've got these two parallel entities, right? You've got this National Assembly, which is, you know, one group of international figures says is the uh, authentic political power and then the others uh, the majority admittedly that says Maduro is but going along with that you also have the two judicial systems the ju- ju- judiciaries and uh, of course you you know depending on who you talk to you're going to get the same you know, you know well Maduro is legitimate legitimate elections uh, constitutional assembly is you know defended by article 347 of the constitution and the National Assembly, the, the you know Supreme Court said they're in contempt, and so they're trying to break through the gridlock and so on. And so that's uh, so that there's that perspective, but then the, the opposition will also put forward their arguments, and uh, you know I, I kind of get the sense that uh, you know, because you have those two parallel systems, I mean, I don't I, I don't know how you break through that in the spirit of a, a kind of a, a the, the democratic. A certain amount of cohesion is needed, and how, how long can you continue with these two parallel? Well, this is the, the you know this is why this is such a perilous moment for the country because, I mean, as you highlighted here, the opposition won the national assembly elections in 2015. They won they won a landslide majority, um, which then kind of slightly undermines their constant claim that the election process can't be trusted because they won a, a majority in 2015. But then I think that what was very unfortunate was that you had Maduro, who'd just come into the presidency, 
The opposition controlled the National Assembly. But rather than trying to work with the presidency, which I accept would have been a real challenge for, for the opposition, but rather than working with the presidency, the National Assembly then began to try and undo many of the most popular aspects of the Chavez government policy agenda. So rolling back things like housing reform, land redistribution. I mean, I think that was a really serious mistake from the opposition, but they in particular were almost focused on trying to secure the release of one of the key opposition figures, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, um, who had been imprisoned owing to his role in a pretty violent opposition uh, demonstrations from 2014. So in a way, they kind of, the opposition similarly lost a focus on the national interest. And in a way, that's made it even more inevitable that we saw a deepening polarisation. So Maduro's response to the National Assembly was then to convene a National Constituent Assembly, uh, which many read as a way of trying to bypass the National Assembly. Um, So what we've had then is this kind of creation of a dual power state, the National Assembly, the Congress dominated by the opposition, the National Constituent Assembly, which has been convened by Maduro. Um, And then ultimately, we have this situation now where the US, Canada, the European Union do not recognise Maduro's National Constituent Assembly, and they don't recognise the legitimacy of his presidential election from uh, 2018. So in a way, this has been a very slow unravelling of a very deep polarisation. And I think it can get far worse in Venezuela before it gets any better. My emphasis has been really quite constantly now on the urgency of dialogue and negotiations, which has made me hugely unpopular with people on the left because it would appear that I'm not recognising the legitimacy of Maduro's presidential election. And it makes me hugely unpopular with people on the right uh, who then say, well, how can you continue to defend this narco dictatorship, as they call it, um, which has previously walked out of dialogue and negotiations? But I think the reality is that we cannot continue in Venezuela with a situation of of such paralysis. I mean, it's nobody's interest to carry on like this. So, yes, I think that it's very difficult in a situation of such acute polarisation. And coming from the UK right now, where obviously we have our own acute polarisation, I, you know, I do feel very sympathetic to the situation in Venezuela. But there are also people, you know, who are more towards the the centre of both the opposition and the government who do have the opportunity to kind of work together, bridge divides, build mutual confidence. So it's not necessarily a question of getting Maduro and Guaido around the table. It's about saying, well, who are the other people here who could potentially work together? Because we have to move to a situation where everybody in the country recognises one judiciary and everybody in the country recognises one national election administration. Of course, there are these foreign actors that are definitely going to um, be a a bit of a fly in the ointment of any potential negotiation process uh, because they have their own interests. Of course, I I think probably my listenership by now is is familiar with the role of the United States and Canada and uh, ulterior motives related to oil and uh, gas, uh, ideological alternative, uh, maybe even uh, rare earth minerals. But uh, maybe something that we don't talk about quite so much is the the role of China and Russia. And certainly, hearing you talk, it's uh, they're it's not as simple as solidarity. And and maybe the left tends to kind of gloss over it. I mean, whatever interests they may have, well, you know, we got to resist uh, predatory U.S. involvement. So maybe you could spell out uh, where where you see Russia and China's uh, involvement. Uh, uh, 
both to the, the benefit and the detriment of, of the people of Venezuela? Well, I mean, this was the irony during the, the Chavez presidency is that Venezuela had always had very, very close relations with the US throughout, you know, th- for over 100 years since the beginning of the exploitation of its oil economy, you know, from 1912 onwards. Um, but what Chavez actually wanted to do was build a multipolar world order. He believed that China and Russia were very important international actors. Um, but while wanting to build what he called a multipolar system, which was intended to dilute the unipolar influence of the United States, the Chavez government also did deepen its trade ties with the US. So we did have a lot of anti-Yankee, anti-imperialism narrative and rhetoric from the Chavez government. But commercial relations continued. The oil economy continued. The oil bilateral ties continued. Venezuela's oil refineries in the United States of America, Sitco, which is the uh, Venezuela national oil industry, Pedavesa's wholly owned company affiliate in the USA. And that was what was, I think, quite extraordinary about what happened during the Chavez period is that they did retain this extraordinarily high level of dependence on bilateral commercial ties with the US and the oil industry. So in many respects, when people say, well, you know, the reason why the United States wants to overthrow Venezuela is because they want to take control of Venezuela's oil. The US, in many respects, already had significant leverage over the Venezuelan oil sector. What we saw happening towards um, certainly the third term uh, for President Chavez is after 2006, is that he looked increasingly to China and to Russia to try and offset the decline in private and foreign direct investment in the country. So this wasn't, I don't think, a substitute for U.S. uh, commercial relations. I think it was to try and address the shortfall in foreign direct investment. A lot of money was pulled out of Venezuela. So Venezuela increasingly looked to China for lending, for support, for investment, for a whole host of financial uh, reasons, but also political. I mean, it was helpful to have China and Russia on side in, for example, the United Nations, these kinds of institutions. China became a very significant lender to Venezuela. I think the total uh, exposure of China in Venezuela is in the region of $75 billion. Um, And China has essentially stepped in to make up for the shortfall uh, that's been caused by the decline in Venezuelan oil prices and the decline in Venezuelan oil production. So instead of going to the IMF or the World Bank, as many Latin American countries had to do in the 1980s when they were hugely indebted, Venezuela looked to China. Now, China offered Venezuela uh, enormous, enormous benefits in terms of no reliance on the US. But at the same time, Venezuela also offered China huge advantages. In particular, it enabled China to extend its energy footprint in Latin America. This was a really, really important opportunity for China to extend its influence in in this hemisphere. China was able to invest in Venezuelan oil sector, in exploration, in mining. Uh, A lot of transport infrastructure as well was supported by Chinese investment. And similarly for Russia, Russia on a lesser level, I would argue, certainly than China, I think the overall level of debt exposure to Russia on Venezuela's part is something in the region of six billion. Um, But Russia has also invested very, very heavily. Uh, Shell, BP, when the kind of British and Dutch oil sector pulled out of Venezuela, uh, Shell certainly handed over many of its investments to Gazprom, to the Russian oil sector uh, through their Shell-Gazprom linkages. So Gazprom, um, as with the Chinese oil companies, has huge investments in the country. So the idea that Huang Guaido, uh, the this interim president who has assumed uh, parallel power in Venezuela, could simply shut out Russia and China um, from any negotiations or any discussion or you know a kind of 
any real engagement with these two countries, given how pivotal they have become in Venezuela, to me was just really quite extraordinary. And the idea that you can simply turn back that only the US has a role really to play in, you know, determining the the future of Venezuela, kind of returning to the Monroe Doctrine, the idea that somehow Latin America is the US backyard, which we saw articulated by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You know, John Bolton, they've all said, you know, it's good to go back to the Monroe Doctrine. Well, it, it's impossible to go back to the Monroe Doctrine. You can't simply turn the clock back um, in the way that US policymakers seem to think. You mean you can't make America great again? <laughs> well, I, I don't think that's really going to be possible, uh, not on the foundations that seem to be uh, being laid in order to do that. But, you know, the reality is, and we've seen it, and I think what's been so important about what's happened since Guaido declared this interim presidency, I think this has been a huge foreign policy failure for the US. Um, you know, we're very, very worried right now that there will be some form of US-led military intervention into Venezuela. But I would say that the US actions in Venezuela have been, it's been about public relations, it's been stunts, it's been circuses, it's been nothing productive, which has in any way enabled us to either address, you know, a quite severe uh, I mean, it's called the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. I mean, it's just not being handled. If there is these kind of very, very serious concerns around the Venezuelan border, you know, with Colombia, four million people leaving the country, the US has done nothing to address this properly. You know, you cannot offer Venezuela $45 million in, in uh, economic or humanitarian aid, while at the same time imposing crippling, devastating oil sanctions, as we've had since February and financial sanctions since 2017. This is costing Venezuela billions of dollars. Um, and yet the US is offering $45 million in economic assistance. It's been, it's been a travesty. And the reality is that the US has really, I think, played all of its cards. And the most important thing that we've learned is that Colombia, Brazil and Argentina have not deployed their military in the way that many people expected might be the case. Uh, there was a lot of pressure, particularly from the Venezuelan diaspora in the US, to try and have some form of uh, multilateral, multi-agency military intervention. Not just the US, because that would have been a disaster, but bringing in the Colombians and the Brazilians and the Argentines. Um, and what we've seen from Colombia and Brazil is that they simply can't commit in the way that people expected them to be able to. So we live in a very different era now, where not everybody jumps in Latin America when the US tells them to. That was Julia Buxton, Professor of Comparative Politics at Central European University School of Public Policy and Senior Research Associate at the Global Drug Policy Observatory, Swansea University, in a conversation recorded at CKUW Studio on Wednesday, March 27th. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.